Before we begin, I want you to know that I went into this episode thinking I'd only be talking about one story, which was horrific enough, but I had no idea what other drama I would end up running into. As it turns out, these two stories are so connected that they just had to be included together. So get ready to be angry, shocked, and likely very emotional as we dive into the disturbing details of a horrific crime. And I must warn you, this story may be difficult to listen to for some. It contains information about harm to a child, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. On the night of February 4th, 2007, Charity was working at a sports restaurant in Abilene, Texas during the Super Bowl between the Indianapolis Colts and the Chicago Bears. Despite being exhausted from working a full day on Saturday, she still had to work the night of the Super Bowl. It was one of the, if not the, biggest nights of the year for all sports bars and restaurants. At around 11 o'clock that night, as she's attending to customers, Charity is unaware that at that moment, her 13-year-old son, Paris, was making a call to 911. Abilene 911. Hello? Abilene 911, go ahead. Around midnight, police officers arrived at the restaurant and asked to speak with the manager in private. Not long after the police arrived, the manager emerged from his office and sought out Charity. She followed him back to the officers, and as you might imagine, her heart was just pounding out of her chest. The police broke the news to her that her four-year-old daughter, Ella, had been hurt. That's all they would say. She demanded to see her daughter but the police wouldn't let her go, insisting that she stay put. Charity couldn't fathom why they wouldn't let her go. Ella needed her. She was just a little girl. She was probably scared and obviously hurt. But as the reality of the situation set in, the officers dropped the final bombshell. Her daughter, Ella, was dead. Charity then asked the police about her 13-year-old son, who was supposed to be with their babysitter as well. But all that they told her was that they had him. This was just the beginning of a nightmare that Charity could never have imagined. As Charity rushed home, police cars filled her neighborhood. Upon entering her house, she was confronted with a devastating sight. Her four-year-old daughter, Ella, in a body bag with only her face visible. A female officer had insisted on this arrangement, wanting Charity to see her daughter's face, but to also be shielded from the brutal reality of what had happened to her. Charity described that Ella laid there. There was uh, blood coming out of the side of her mouth and a large bruise on her forehead from being hit very hard. At this point, Charity just lets out a scream of agony and was speaking to Ella, kept repeating how sorry she was for not being there. And as if the shock of her daughter's death wasn't enough, the police had taken Charity's 13-year-old son, Paris, into custody, accusing him of murdering his little sister. The next morning, Charity found herself in a defense attorney's office and struggling with this incredibly difficult decision about 
her 13-year-old Paris. He had obviously been accused of murdering his four-year-old sister and she felt torn because between her love for Ella and her loyalty to her only surviving child. When she arrived, Paris was alone, sitting alone in the back of the room. After some time, Paris talked. He said to his mom, quote, you used to say that you would never have been able to kill anybody unless they hurt one of your kids. I bet you didn't think it was going to turn out like this. So what are you going to do now? Now, Charity wasn't at the attorney's office to help Paris get released. Um, she wanted to get Paris the help that he needed. She believed he needed to be placed in a mental institution to determine what was wrong with him. She didn't just want him locked up. Now, the defense attorney obviously wanted Paris to plead not guilty, and Charity knew this is not going to solve the root problem. She was terrified of her own son, and she didn't want him to come back home. The prosecution, however, wanted to give him the maximum sentence possible. Now, after Paris went to trial, uh, he was indeed found guilty. Uh, he was sen sentenced to 40 years in jail and will be eligible for parole in 2027. Now, remember, he's 13 years old at this time. When the details about his crime came out, it was horrifying. Paris had raped, beaten, and then stabbed his four-year-old sister Ella 17 times. Now, before we get too much further, let's talk about that 911 call that Paris made, because obviously he did make the 911 call and that's how Charity found out what was going on. Paris himself, uh, years later, claims he's never heard it, uh, but it's really hard to imagine that it wasn't played in court. Perhaps he wasn't present in the room when it was played, but regardless, the details of the call are chilling. And while I don't have the full recording, I do have what I believe are the most critical parts of this call. Now, in this first recording, you'll hear the first part of Paris's 911 call. Note how he sounds very distressed, as if he's crying. His mom would later say that she has heard Paris cry, and this is not it. Abilene 911. Hello? Abilene 911, go ahead. I, 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 actually, I actually killed somebody. You think you killed somebody? No, I know I did. My sister. Okay, where's your sister now? She's in the bed. Is she breathing? No, I looked. I feel so messed up. Okay, calm down, okay? I want you to stay on the phone with me, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what's your sister's name? Her name is Ella. Ella Bennett. How old is Ella? Four. She's four years old? How old yeah. are you? Thirteen. Is she bleeding anywhere? Yes, yeah, she's bleeding all over the bed. Because I stabbed her. What did you stab her with? A knife. Okay, where'd you stab her? A knife. Okay, Paris, where's the knife? It's on the bed with her. I didn't mean to. I okay, I know Paris. Okay, I want you to stay calm for me, okay? Okay, what, listen to me. Paris? In this second part of the 911 call, you're going to hear the dispatcher coaxing, coaxing Paris to perform CPR on his sister and how to go about doing it. I want you to start CPR, okay? What I want you to do is take her off the bed. No, I know for a fact that she's dead because do I... Do you want to go ahead and try? It might still help, okay? No, I, I don't think it'll help because... Come on, Paris, work with me. I know I stabbed her lots of times. Okay. Paris? Yes? Take her off the bed and put her on the floor. Okay, hold on. Please don't hang up. I'm not hanging up on you. I thought she was a demon. Okay. Okay, she's on the floor, but I can't stay here because she's all bloody and Paris, what I want you to do is I want you to put your hands on her chest, mm -hmm. okay? And I want you to push 30 times. I want you to count. 
Okay. All the way to 30, and then blow two breaths in her mouth. Okay? Okay. More information actually came to light about Paris's disturbing behavior during this particular portion of the call. Now, obviously, the dispatcher is instructing Paris to perform CPR on his sister. And as you could tell, he was reluctant to do so. However, as you heard, he eventually agreed and started counting off the numbers. Now, later on, it was revealed that he wasn't actually performing CPR on his sister. What he was doing was just walking around the house with his phone in his hand, counting out loud. He wasn't even in the same room as Ella. Now, despite the heinous nature of Paris's crime, the fact that he could be eligible for parole may seem a little surprising. But due to his young age at the time of the crime, he falls under a different category of sentencing. Had he been 18 or older, parole would not have been an option. Now, what we do know about Paris is Paris Paris has a very high IQ. Uh, It's at 141, which is considered the genius level. Now, why this is important is that some criminal profilers have suggested that he may have intentionally planned the timing of his crime. By committing the act at the age of 13, he would then be eligible for release in his mid-30s. It's a disturbing thought, especially for his mom, Charity. Now, after Paris was found guilty and sentenced, uh, of course, because of his age, he was sent to the juvenile unit in Brazoria, Texas. Now, following his conviction and sentencing, a court-appointed assessor approached Charity and told her that she deserved to know the truth about her son. Paris was a psychopath, but Charity, she couldn't accept it. She refused to believe it, and she felt that the assessor's diagnosis was wrong, that there must be, there must be some other explanation for his behavior. In the meantime, Charity had to go about living her life in the small town of Abilene, Texas, and this wasn't easy. She faced a lot of criticism and judgment from people in the community. They would constantly come up to her and ask her questions like, what kind of books did Paris read? What kind of video games did he play? Were there any warning signs? Or did you know that Paris was different? People would give her constant looks of disgust while she was just trying to run errands. Sometimes even complete strangers would approach her and say, hey, aren't you that mom whose son killed your daughter? Now, during Paris's time in juvenile, Charity would start to receive reports about her son's behavior. As she went through the reports, she began to wonder if the doctors were right. Was Paris really a psychopath? Now, Charity, she's desperate for answers about her son. And so what she did is she decided to have him evaluated using the hair psychopathy checklist, the youth version. Now, several assessors evaluated Paris. And the last person to do so was Dr. Park Dietz. Now, he's a well-known psychiatrist who has previously interviewed notorious criminals. Um, one of those were was uh, Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. I just did a recent episode on him. And Dr. Dietz recommended to Charity that she stop spending money on her son and instead start spending money on changing her identity and going into hiding for the day when Paris was released from prison. He even provided her with the contact information for a risk management firm. Just think about that for a second. Your child, as diagnosed by one of the best professionals in the country, is telling you to do whatever you can 
to run and hide. Don't ever let Paris, your own son, find you because the results could be devastating. Now, in order to understand the gravity of Paris's psychopathic diagnosis, we need to look at the definition of a psychopath. Um, psychopaths are known to be pathological liars, great manipulators, and lack any sense of right or wrong. They have little to no morality and show little to no empathy towards others. Now, to put this in perspective, let's say that you, you viewed a horrific car crash. You would likely feel shocked and distressed at what you were seeing. You may even begin to cry at the horrible scene in front of you. You may even start to pray. You would show empathy. These are all completely normal and expected reactions. Psychopaths, on the other hand, wouldn't show any kind of emotion. They may even just stare at the crash, hoping to see one of the individuals hurt or better yet, suffering. No feeling would be moving through them, not shock, not fear, not sorrow for those involved and definitely not empathy. As a matter of fact, this lack of empathy is a classic psychopathic trait. They are also notorious for being selfish, deceitful, and deriving pleasure from causing pain to others, whether that pain is physical or emotional. In childhood, many psychopaths actually exhibit cruel behavior towards animals. One example of this would be, say, tying two cats' tails together and watching them fight, which, if you remember, was exactly what the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, did when he was a child. Later, it would be learned that when Paris was younger, his mom caught him throwing frogs from a balcony to the cement below. She took him down to see if any of these frogs had survived, and some had. But one in particular was very badly hurt. It was hurt so much that Charity wanted to just put the poor thing out of its misery, but Paris didn't want to. Now, some people believe that this was because Paris had some kind of empathy for the animal. But knowing what we now know of Paris, it's safe to say that he just enjoyed watching the animal suffer. Now, unlike many conditions, which can be managed really well or even cured altogether, psychopaths will never age out as they get older. They will always have it. It can be managed to an extent but it will never be cured. Earlier, I had talked about how people in Abilene, Texas had a million questions for Charity about her son. And to approach her with those, especially so soon after losing her daughter was, in my opinion, very, very cruel. Uh, but there is one question that stands out, uh, one that I'm sure we're all asking. I know I did. Were there any signs? Now, there are home movies that Charity took, and these are available to view by the public. And you can see Paris playing with Ella. He tended to play, at times, very rough with Ella, at least in the short family video clips that were shown. But this, again, could just be roughhousing. You know, there's a fine line between playing rough with your siblings and showing that someday you'll be capable of murdering them. In one video in particular, he wraps his arm around Ella's throat while his mom is recording, and she has to tell him not to do that. It's almost as if Paris is testing Charity. He knows the video camera is on. He knows that what he's doing, he's not supposed to do, but he does it anyway as he lets his mom watch. Now, after she tells him to stop, he does very quickly. In another video, they are in the kitchen. Ella is in the sink taking a bath while Charity is doing some cleaning and Paris is just randomly walking around the kitchen. Now off camera, you can hear Paris ask Charity, what's your least favorite word? And Charity says, what? Paris then rephrases the question. He asks your least favorite word or sentence. And Charity responds with, I don't know. Paris then says, kill Charity's children? It's at this point that the video cuts out. In another home movie, 
It shows Paris and Ella, who's maybe, Ella at this point, is maybe a year and a half. And they are playing inside of Ella's ball pit. Uh, Paris, at one point, he picks up Ella, rolls her over to the other side of the ball pit, at the same time saying, I will kill you. If Ella is one and a half, this would put Paris at around eight and a half or maybe nine years old. So it kind of makes you wonder, how long had he actually been planning this? In later interviews, Paris is questioned about the night he killed his sister. Uh, He is much older when he gives the interviews. He's well past 18 years old, and he's already been moved into an adult prison. There are two main interviews that I referenced. Uh, I will have these linked for you in the bio on Instagram. I highly suggest that if you're interested, you do watch them. It's one thing for me to explain them here, but quite another thing to actually watch Paris answer these questions in person. During the interviews, each time he's asked a question, he pauses for a few seconds before answering. It's as if he's trying to form the perfect answer that won't put him into any kind of jeopardy for his upcoming parole hearing, which is just a few years away. It's really easy to get drawn into believing him. He's well-spoken and polite. Uh, When he finally does speak, it's nearly monotone. There's no emotion. There's no facial expressions. I guess the best way to put it is that it's very flat. Even when he's asked about his crime or about his sister, the tone doesn't change. Now, a normal person would have their voice crack or their eyes would well up with tears. But with Paris, it's no more emotional than if he were telling you how he brushes his teeth in the morning. It's really eerie to watch. He does say that for many years, quote, for many years, there was a big flaming ball of wrath in the pit of my stomach, and it was directed at my mother. He had determined that the best way to hurt his mother was not to kill her, but to make her suffer by getting rid of one of her children. Quote, and I found a way to get rid of both of her children in one fell swoop. While it's never talked about in the interviews, or at least the ones that I watched, it is later learned that the night of his sister's murder, he convinced the babysitter to leave early. He told her that he and Ella would be fine. Ella, at this point, she's fast asleep, and so the babysitter agrees. He then watched some graphic and violent pornography, grabbed a knife from the kitchen, and went up to his sister's bedroom, where he then raped, beat, and then murdered her. Upon examining Ella's body, the autopsy report uncovered a specifically disturbing detail. The initial knife wounds on little Ella's body were not intended to be fatal. Rather, they were short and shallow cuts made with the aim of causing fear and pain. Paris does admit that after the first two stabs, he hesitated. He knows he could have stopped. He claims that there was a struggle inside of him. One part knew it was wrong. He loved his sister and, quote, would have turned the world upside down for her. The other part of him was the wounded, twisted, dark part, the part that had been in pain for so long. He wanted to cause pain the pain that he had been feeling inside. He wanted to give it to somebody else. He said that as he was stabbing her, he struggled with himself to stop, but that he didn't put up enough of a fight with himself. By the time he had started, it was too late. In this same interview, he's very quick to point out that it's not like he was hearing voices or anything or that he was crazy. He believes he is not insane and doesn't suffer from any mental illness, but then goes on to say that he's sure that most crazy people say the same thing. He quote unquote accepts that he's sane, but he had issues. He wasn't well adjusted. He lashed out. He had always been very disconnected from his emotions and sat inside his head instead of his heart. He continued to say, quote, I lied very much. 
about what I had done. The lies were shed like articles of clothing. I would stop telling one lie, then stop telling another, and then after a while, I would strip myself bare. Personally, to me, this sounds like a psychiatrist talking. As if Paris had been having visits and this is what they told him. Therefore, he was just simply repeating them because they sound good. And remember, he's got parole coming up, right? Paris is asked if he had a plan for what he did to his sister, if this was all planned out. And he responds with, quote, it's not like he had a plan to rob a bank. He claims that he was just swept along. Earlier, I had talked about the home movies where Paris was either playing rough with Ella or the creepy and terrifying prediction that he gave while he was in the kitchen and said, kill Charity's children. But on the flip side of this, there are also other home movies, movies that show him as a loving, caring older brother. There's nothing out of the ordinary at all. And that's probably what's so scary as you're watching these very typical and commonplace home movies, nothing in them is screaming at you saying, Ella's in danger, be careful. Even his own teachers didn't recognize anything out of the ordinary. As a matter of fact, he would often get incredible praise from his teachers about schoolwork that he had done. In one case, one letter that Paris received told him to keep up the good work and keep showing his fellow students the great example he was showing. According to Paris, quote, for a few minutes after it, meaning the murder of Ella, after it happened, it almost seemed like it was a dream, like it hadn't just happened because I had left the room and everything and I was just hyperventilating and then I had walked back in and I had seen Ella. And when I did, it hit me like a punch in the gut that no, I really just did that. And I called 911 because I felt like I had to do something about this. I need, maybe they can do something. Maybe it's not too late. But when he personally was given the chance to quote unquote, fix it by performing CPR on his sister, he instead just walked around the house. Later, Ella's body would be found off of the bed. So she was at least moved off of the bed, but she was face down. She was not face up as would needed would be needed if someone was in fact performing CPR on her. In an interview with Pierce Morgan, Paris is asked if he wants to hear the 911 call that he made. Now, remember earlier, I had said that he claimed he'd never heard it. He responded to Pierce, no, he didn't want to hear it. He was afraid it would, quote, make him break down and any sign of emotional weakness would be instant bait to predators when he had to go back into the public space of the jail. Now, logically, this makes sense, at least to you or me. But in Paris's case, he unlikely would have had any reaction at all. None. But maybe this is what he was afraid of, hearing his 911 call and showing the world that he had no reaction. Paris does recall that after he made his 911 call and the police showed up, a he remembers a male officer walking past him to Ella's bedroom and hearing this male officer say, oh my God. Paris claims that after hearing this, he was quote unquote, drowning in shame. He is asked in this interview about what caused him to do it. And what he said was quote, I remember being angry all day long and thinking all day long, I want to hurt somebody. I'm going to snap. And it wasn't initially all I thought about the babysitter. I thought about going down the street and seeing somebody I knew and I even and about hurting a stranger. I don't remember at one point I decided it was going to be Ella. He continues to talk about how he loved Ella and that if he had to describe his emotions for his sister that it would take hours. Quote, I loved her with every fiber of my being. However, during this interview, he's being closely watched by profilers who noted that he has struggled to describe what love looked 
or even felt like. One of the profilers compared it to asking a colorblind person to describe the color red. You just can't do it. Paris further says that he was so angry at his mother because he felt he spent a lot of time feeling alone as a child, which of course surprised his mom, who happened to be listening in on the interview. He continued and said, quote, I spent a lot of time feeling left out, not only by my peers, but also by my own family. Now, Charity, his mom, explains that this is not the first time that she's heard this. Paris was always involved. She was always present. She remembers it much differently than he does. Paris also describes this darkness inside of him. He calls it a wolf. And he believes that he's learning to keep the wolf in check. His mom would later say that as a child, he would describe this same thing. uh, But instead of using the term wolf, he would use the word tentacles. Tentacles that were trying to come and drag his mind to dark places. It's so hard for me to even describe my thought process at this. You know, on one hand, we know what he's done. So it's easy to go back and say, well, there you go. He had these darkness issues as a kid. This could have been prevented. But at the same time, before all of this happened, there was no way to take this statement about these tentacles and equate it to what would happen in the future. It's like anything in life that happens. It happens so slowly and at such random intervals, often over years, that it's not noticeable. If you take all of the pieces and put them together at once, it's easy to see, but that's not how things usually go. Paris also admitted that the reason he killed Ella was that he wanted his mom all to himself again. Now, I honestly don't know what to believe because initially, He had thoughts of killing his mom, and we'll find out something about this a little bit later. So I don't know that I buy this statement at all. I think, and this is my personal opinion, is that he wanted to kill someone, and Ella just happened to be an easy first target. Plus, the need to have his mom all to himself again would insinuate that he had feelings for his mom, and we know that this is likely not not true due to his psychopathy. Now, plus, as someone diagnosed as a psychopath, we also know that they are liars and manipulators. So we can take what Paris has to say with a grain of salt. Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he's not. Paris emphatically states that just because he did something when he was 13 didn't mean that he's the same person today. He knows that people judge him based on what he did. He also knows that people believe when he gets out that he'll do it again. He said that just because this happened, it doesn't mean he's going to get out and commit more murders. Quote, when I get out of here, I'm going to prove you all wrong. After he says this in the interview, he swallows hard. It's almost as if he's trying to convince himself of this as well. So now that we know a little bit about Paris, let's take a look at the eerily similar story of Charity's childhood, specifically her mom, Kyla. Charity has never had it easy. Uh, In 1980, her father was murdered. He had been shot multiple times in the foyer of his home. Uh, Charity's mom was only 29 at the time. Charity at this point was six and just 57 hours Hours earlier, Charity's mom, Kyla, and Charity's father, Bobby, had gotten remarried in Las Vegas. Now, for years, the Bennetts owned a rather large uh, trucking company that did extremely well. And a month after the funeral, Kyla, Charity's mom, was arrested and charged with murder. On April 10th, of 1980, Kyla Bennett had been indicted for murder along with an accomplice in the death of Kyla's again husband, remember, of just 57 hours. His name was Bobby. It was also also discovered that Bobby had a life insurance policy of $100,000 
that was taken out in January of the same year, and that Bobby and Kyla had frequent fights over Bobby's girlfriend. The court documents also revealed that the accomplice who had supposedly been working with Kyla had attempted to recruit other men to commit the crime a full week before Bobby and Kyla got remarried. So here, uh, Charity's father, Bobby, is dead after having been murdered at home. Her mom, Kyla, has been arrested for her dad's murder. And during Kyla's bond hearing, uh, what she did is she took the stand and she testified. She was very calm. She referred to her late husband as Mr. Bennett, not Bobby. Uh, Kyla said that she held the position of secretary to the board of directors of her husband's trucking company before he died. And after he died, she had since taken over as president. So at this bond hearing, uh, both Kyla and her accomplice were denied bail and spent the weekend in jail. Now, because she was in jail, the company was then turned over to a court appointed receiver to handle the company while she was incarcerated. Uh, just a handful of days later, Kyla's, Kyla's attorney had the company returned to her, even though she was still in jail. Now, during this proceeding, again, Kyla took the stand, uh, but this time she invoked the Fifth Amendment 32 times. Intriguingly, it was discovered that Bobby had actually intended to have his remarriage to Kyla annulled just a few days after they got remarried. They got remarried in Vegas. This raised some questions as to why would they even go through with the wedding in the first place? Bobby had even begun to introduce one of his girlfriends as his fiance prior to him dying. Detectives were really puzzled by this until it was revealed that Kyla may have taken out a contract on her husband's life even before they rushed to Las Vegas and got remarried. Bobby's financial troubles, including unpaid bank loans and IRS issues, left most of their finances in Kyla's name. The couple's trucking company was also on the brink of bankruptcy, and it was speculated that Kyla believed that Bobby might just fold the company, leave her with nothing, take off with his girlfriend, and of course she'd be high and dry. It was said that during the trial uh, was the first time that Kyla showed her first signs of emotions um, as the district attorney displayed her late husband's Bobby's bloodstained shirt to the jurors. Now, Bobby Bennett, he'd been found shot to death, um, like we said, just two days after he remarried Kyla. They had actually previously divorced in 1973. So this wasn't like a, hey, they got divorced like a year ago and then we got remarried. This is quite a few years in between. The autopsy revealed that Bobby had been shot at close range with very little chance to defend himself. He had died almost immediately. Four bullets were removed from his body and the time of death was estimated to be between eight o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock in the morning. The body was discovered by the nanny and part-time secretary for the trucking company, who, I might add, was also Kyla's friend, um, who, after she discovered Bobby uh, laying their shot on the foyer, then went to a neighbor's house and called the police. Now, why she went to a neighbor's home instead of using a phone in the house, I don't know. Uh, but nonetheless, that's exactly what she did. So Kyla told police that she left her home, this is in Marietta, Georgia, around eight o'clock in the morning with her daughter and her nanny after she had prepared a bath for her husband who was napping on the couch in the den. They ran errands and visited Bob Bennett's trucking company, which Kyla, of course, managed. It wasn't until Kyla called home at around 10.30 in the morning to check on her husband that she learned from a police officer who had answered the phone that there had been trouble at the house. And so she immediately returned home. The prosecution wanted to demonstrate that Kyla 
who stood to benefit from a $100,000 life insurance policy, that she conspired with a part-time worker of the trucking company, who was her accomplice, uh, to orchestrate Bobby's murder. Now, ironically, or however you want to look at it, Bobby actually failed the physical examination, so he didn't even secure the life insurance policy. So on the other hand, um, here's the defense. They're arguing that Bobby, who was a high roller, he drove a white Rolls Royce. He had a criminal record. He had numerous enemies who had stronger motives for wanting him dead. Uh, they all placed the blame on just the, some unknown person. Bobby was also, the day that he was murdered, robbed of at least $21,500 worth of jewelry and cash. Additionally, the bullets that were used in the murder were had been out of production for almost three years, which raised questions about whether a professional hitman uh, would have used outdated ammunition because they're saying that she went out and hired somebody. Uh, professional killers also rarely steal personal effects from victims. So in case you didn't know that little tidbit, there you go. So of course, during the trial, they have all kinds of witnesses come up uh, on the stand. And uh, one of them was a woman who said, claimed to be Bobby's fiance. And she had testified that they had had a violent quarrel the day before Bobby was shot. Bobby had told her to vacate a leased condo, which was paid for by Bobby, by a certain date or face forced eviction. Uh, she evidently, this fiance, was also once barred from a Buckhead Tavern for allegedly threatening Bobby with a 38 caliber revolver. Uh, now, a 38 caliber is actually the same type of bullets that were found and used in the shooting. However, the gun used in the crime in the murder of Bobby was never found. Now, the woman, she's up there on the stand wearing a 1.9 carat diamond ring that Bobby had allegedly given to her in December. Now, this is December. The life insurance thing was supposed to be taken out in January, and that involved Kyla, not this fiance. The fiance denied that their relationship was stormy and violent, but admitted that it was strained due to the power struggle between Bobby and Kyla over money, the house, and the control of the trucking company that Kyla now owned and managed. During her testimony, she also revealed that her relationship with Bobby, Bobby had been strained um, especially because he also had ongoing relationships with other women. They had also argued about his plan to remarry Kyla. So Bobby did tell his quote unquote fiance that, hey, I'm going to remarry my ex-wife. But the reason for this is that Bobby believed it was the only way that he could regain control of the house and the company. Other witnesses also took the stand and admitted that Kyla, she had been working tirelessly to keep the business afloat, often working long hours and weekends while Bobby was nowhere to be seen. Um, a former business associate of Bobby's added that he was actually rarely seen in person. Most communication was done over the phone while Kyla was the run one running the business on a day-to-day -day basis. The, uh, the fiance further revealed that Bobby had sent her a telegram telegram demanding that she get out of this condo um, or face the prospect of having her belongings thrown onto the street corner by the sheriff. Now the fiance described this as childish and admitted that Bobby was so incensed by her refusal to leave, to leave the condo that evidently Bobby had rammed his car into hers in a parking lot of a local restaurant. So she also shared that Bobby had kicked her coffee table and shattered the glass top on, on a previous occasion. Another witness, the fiance's roommate, alleged that Bobby had killed her cat and stolen jewelry along with a 38 caliber revolver from the condo while they were both away. Now remember, 38 caliber is the same type of gun that was supposed to be used in the murder of Bobby. 
This fiance continues to testify and says that during the time that Bobby and Kyla were in Las Vegas preparing to get remarried, um, they had been speaking. Bobby and his fiance, this girlfriend, had been speaking to one another. And she said that Bobby wanted to have his marriage annulled. Uh, she further testified that she had been, quote unquote, terrorized by Kyla, who repeatedly called and visited her demanding to meet. So in the trial, the live-in nanny, who was also that personal friend of Kyla's, she got on the stand and testified. And she recounted a conversation that she had with Kyla. According to the nanny, one night Kyla told her, quote, I have something to tell you. I've taken a contract out on Bobby. The testimony served as a critical piece of evidence for the prosecution, you know, proving that Kyla, she had actually conspired to have her husband killed. The live-in nanny slash friend had been granted immunity in exchange for her cooperation. And within her testimony, she also revealed that Kyla had confessed to hiring a part-time worker from the trucking company for $5,000 to, quote, dispose of Bobby. The witness at first, she thought that Kyla was just angry at her husband and that it would pass. Seriously, who sits there and just makes up this stuff about, hey, I'm just pissed at my husband, so let's just go ahead and let's pretend that we're going to take a contract out on, her li on their lives. The defense uh, tried to discredit her, uh, you know, by pointing out that she'd previously lied and had really weird behavior when the police first showed up on the scene. But what was interesting is that this nanny slash friend revealed that uh, the killer uh, had actually made several attempts to try and get Bobby alone uh, before he was finally shot. But what Kyla would do was for many times she would wake up the nanny and then she'd wake up Charity at super early hours of the morning and tell them both this was it and that they had to leave the house early so that they weren't around when this crime occurred. The morning of the murder, Kyla had done the same. Uh, she'd woken them, up, woken them up saying, hey, this is it. We got to get out of the house. Now, something that Kyla, well, she may or may not have known this, but she had been secretly recorded during an interview at police headquarters. And on this recording, Kyla admitted to having talked to this accomplice of hers about having her husband, quote, knocked off. However, she stated that she didn't take the conversation any further and that it was just simply curiosity. But before the case was given to the jury, Kyla took the stand and in tears declared that, quote, she loved Bobby more than I loved living myself and did not have Bobby killed. Believe it or not, he actually still lived with Kyla. They weren't married, but they still lived together. Um, Bobby did make her the beneficiary of the $100,000 life insurance policy. But, you know, as we know, he didn't pass the the physical. And so this was kind of a non-issue. So after all this and to cut to the chase, uh, Kyla was acquitted. She never was charged with the murder of her husband, Bobby and Charity's father. And on July 8th, 1980, she was completely acquitted. Now, Kyla would give interviews later. Um, this is well after Paris had been born. Obviously, she's quite older. And she spoke freely about the case. Uh, she said that Bobby had been involved with illegal activities and that his father, who was Charity's grandfather, had ties to the Georgia mafia. The bottom line, though, is, is that Charity, she never really had the opportunity to establish a relationship with her father. He wasn't home that often. Um, and as a child, she had grew, grown up with a mother who had been arrested and eventually acquitted of murder. Kyla did admit that she was not the best mom. She admitted that she was drinking a lot. She was even doing drugs, but never in front of Charity, or so she says. Kyla also said that she didn't give Charity all of the attention that Charity probably wanted. She seemed to want attention quite often. 
This is what her mom said. Her mom also said she had nannies. Charity would say that nothing was ever good enough for her mom. And she often felt as if her mom didn't even like her. Now, Kyla, she says that it wasn't that she didn't like her daughter or even approve of her, but that Charity did things her own way differently than she would have done. Quote, I chose to be a mother and have a life. She didn't seem to mind at the time, but as she got older, she seemed to resent the fact that I had a life too, besides just her. She also said that from the age of 12, her and Charity's relationship was up and down. Charity would get mad at her mom and just simply belt out, well, you murdered my dad. Kyla said that Charity, she was a good manipulator and then said, well, we all are. Paris is, Ella was, and I'd be lying to you if I said that I wasn't. She said, Kyla also said, my other daughter didn't have as good of a teacher because I don't need to manipulate any longer with running the trucking company. And I don't have a jury to manipulate. And listeners, just sit with that for a second. I don't have a jury to manipulate. Now, Charity, in uh, one interview, uh, she is specifically speaking of her life and what her life was like prior to Paris and everything happening. She says that when she was 17, she was strung out on heroin. She left school in the 10th grade and her mom kicked her out of the house. Uh, she had literally nowhere to go. Eventually, though, Charity did get herself sober and she went back and she finished high school. She graduated even with honors. And even though she was sober, she kept waiting for the day when things would get better. Everyone told her it would. Eventually, everybody says, hey, don't worry, you know, things will get better. But she felt that like life was just getting way too hard. Too often, she just wanted to go back to the drugs just to take the edge off of life. So Charity then made a deal with herself. She would give herself some time, and if she still wasn't happy, she was just going to overdose. She then met Paris's dad when she was 18 and found out that she was pregnant. Now she was immediately in love with the idea of having a child of her own. And from that day on, her whole life was dedicated to Paris. Now, not long after Charity did get pregnant, uh, Paris's dad just took off. She said that she used to, Charity used to tell Paris that, quote, one of these days, you're going to have to remind me to tell you how you saved my life. Little did she know that 13 years later, he would completely destroy it. When Paris was around one and a half, Paris's dad did actually show back up into their lives, but not for the reason you might think. He told them that he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, as well as audio and visual hallucinations. Now, looking back at the entire situation, it's easy to say things like, well, after learning about this, she should have had Paris tested. But remember, at the time, Paris is like one and a half years old. He's still growing into his personality. And at this point, nothing that a toddler does is really going to cause you any great concern. As Paris grew, he began to draw and was very talented. And eventually, this is when Charity would learn that Paris had an exceptionally high IQ, which placed him solidly in the genius category. He evidently was also a very calm child. There would be the occasional outbursts and tantrums, but overall, as a child, um, a younger child, he was just calm. Now, Paris also had a favorite stuffed animal that he could not sleep without, and this was a bear. Now, this in itself is not unusual by any means. The unusual part was that large parts of the fur of this bear were missing. But the parts that were missing, they weren't random. They were in a pattern, a nice, neat pattern that actually started at the top of the bear's neck and went all the way down to the bottom. Big empty sections of fur was missing, 
with neat rows of fur that had been left all around the midsection. A charity explained that Paris would eat the fur off of the bear and his pediatrician told her that she had to get him to stop. Charity ended up telling the pediatrician that if they wanted to try and come and put him to bed at night without this bear, then feel free. But until then, he can continue. When Paris was around seven, this is when Ella was born. While Charity was pregnant with Ella, Paris was not happy about it, so much so that Charity began to be concerned. Now, I don't know what the concerns were. Um, she does have a book and I'll refer to this later on. I'm sure she covers it then. But uh, Paris didn't like the fact that she, his mom was pregnant with another baby. But after Ella was born, Paris doted on her. He would draw her pictures, he'd play with her constantly, and he would even pick out her clothes every day. Ella's father was involved in their lives until one day uh, when he made a huge mistake. Ella's father was also... Uh, not without his own issues. He had alcohol problems. And one day, Charity received a phone call when Ella was very young that he had been hospitalized. He had been pulled over by the police and refused to get out of the vehicle when he was told to. As the trooper approached and the trooper reached inside his vehicle, he sped off, dragging the officer 75 feet up an exit ramp. Now, the officer ended up shooting him through the leg, and when Charity found out what had happened, she was done with them. She didn't want her kids drugged through that kind of life. Now, Ella, in turn, she adored her big brother. She always had to be doing what Paris was doing. When Paris was 12 and Ella was three, Charity had a relapse, and she again began using drugs. Uh, this time it was cocaine. According to Charity, for three months... Paris, quote, took up the slack and began to look after Ella. Parents used to come up to Charity and tell her how lucky she was to have such a great 13-year-old boy who was so good with his little sister. All of their friends and family used to comment on how good Paris was with Ella. Now, Kyla, she also talked about how much Ella loved her big brother, but she further noted how different Paris and Ella were from one another. Paris would walk into a room and be quiet and polite while Ella was loud and would announce her arrival. She brought life into everyone. Kyla also mentioned that after Ella was born, she didn't say how old uh, Paris was or how far along this was, but Paris would pound his head against the wall until it would bleed or he would throw glass all over the place. And again, she didn't give any details on this, so I don't know what kind of glass it was. Was it drinking glasses, picture frames? You know, nonetheless, she explained that she always thought that Paris would take it out on charity and never dreamed he would take it out on Ella. But we later do find out from Kyla that in November of 2006, so just four months before Ella was murdered, Paris attempted to stab Charity at home. So this time, both Kyla and Charity, they teamed up and they took Paris to a psychiatric place in Wichita Falls. He was there for a while. I couldn't find out how long. But when his time was up, Charity wouldn't allow her mother to come along. Kyla learned, or at least she said she learned, that Charity had been told that Paris had homicidal tendencies and that he should stay to continue treatment. But Charity decided instead to bring him home. Kyla continued to talk in these interviews. Quote, we knew, all of us knew, that there was something wrong with Paris. Charity knew, I knew. From the time Paris was born, he was different. He was never real social or affectionate, and when Ella was born, he wasn't the center of the universe anymore. And all of a sudden, he couldn't do anything right. Like Charity, Kylo was horrified at what Paris had done to Ella. But like Charity, Kyla also never stopped loving Paris. Uh, she had actually offered to pay all of the expenses for a mental institution for Paris if that's what was needed. If he had to be there his whole life, then so be it. Now, even though Charity and her mom Kyla's relationship was strained, they both still did what they could for Paris. They never wanted him to feel as if he were alone. When Paris 
talks about his grandmother, Kyla. He describes her as a cold and collected woman, quote, just like he is. Now, this statement alone just literally chilled Charity. So much so that after Ella had been murdered, she decided to drive to Georgia to have a second look at her mom's case. Charity ended up talking to an officer who had transported her mother the morning her dad died and was provided some actual physical notes on the case. The notes said that Kyla was very calm and even smiling at times as they took her into the uh, took her in. They had found a napkin that Kyla had drawn on. And what it was, uh, this drawing on this napkin was the map of the house. And it indicated which door of the house was unlocked that day. Charity really thought that there might be some kind of biological reason why her son was the way he was just because of the similarity to her mom. Later, Charity found out that her mom, Kyla, had been also sending books to Paris in prison. Now, this sounds fine until you realize what kind of books they are. They happen to be graphic novels about murder and rape. Charity was so angry that she told the prison that uh, Kyla could not send him any more books. She could call him, she could visit him, but she could not send him books. So what Kyla and Paris ended up doing was suing Charity. Paris even went so far as to request that Charity's parental rights be terminated and that he wanted his grandmother, Kyla, to be his guardian instead. Paris would write Charity letters telling her to get out of his life, that she wasn't good for him. Charity, though, uh, felt that her mom might have been influencing Paris. She told Paris, look, this isn't your choice. She was going to continue to do what was best for him, and that was to be a good parent. She told Paris flat out, be wary of your grandmother because, quote, she is just like you. Now, Kyla, of course, has a totally different story. She said that Charity threatened not to speak to Paris any longer, and so Paris eventually dropped his lawsuit because of this. Now, I don't know if Kyla ever dropped her lawsuit or not, but nonetheless, this is the information we have. Because of Charity and her mom being so estranged, uh, Kyla didn't know that six years after Paris had gone to prison, Charity had another child, and this child was a phoenix. Uh, she found out, Kyla only found out about this because Charity had posted it on her Facebook page. Now, Phoenix, he had been born with a severe heart defect. At six years old, he, or six days old, sorry, he had to have open heart surgery. He got through it, and after he was released, he had to be on heart medication and have a feeding tube. Now, Charity, after Phoenix was born, called and told Paris that he had a younger brother. She said that after she told him about the heart defect, he cried. She had never heard him cry like that before, ever. Now, I personally may be pessimistic about this, but I wonder, was he really crying? I mean, really? Paris told his mom something to the effect of, quote, after everything I did to you, it's not fair that you have to go through this again. Now, even though Charity did make Paris aware of Phoenix, uh, you might be a little feel personally a little sketchy about this. I know I did when when I first heard this. She is very, very careful about what she tells Paris uh, when she talks with him. One of the concerns now is not only for the welfare of Charity in the event that Paris is released, but of course, Phoenix. Even though she has been strongly encouraged to stop visiting Paris or having any communication with him at all, she just can't bring herself to leave him and just can't find herself to break off that contact. Now, in one interview, Paris is asked if everything that he did killing his sister and then getting arrested, taking both children essentially away from their mother, achieved his goal in punishing his mom. He responded that no, he didn't ever feel like he had achieved a goal. He goes on to say that he doesn't believe he's a monster. He believes that based on, quote, the most recent information in the Manual for Mental Disorders that people run on a spectrum 
and that why should he be considered the same person today as he was when he was 13 years old? Again, he's logical and obviously looking for a new way to describe himself. Maybe he's looking for some kind of loophole that will make him appear less dangerous so that he can, in fact, get out on parole. It should be noted that Kyla does not believe that Paris is a psychopath. Or, my guess, maybe, she just recognizes something of herself in Paris and is afraid to label him because it may mean that she would have to label herself. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, as of the date of this recording, Paris Bennett is currently at the Ferguson Jail in Midway, Texas. He is 29 years old, and he will be eligible for parole on February 5th, 2027. His maximum sentence date, if he doesn't get this parole, is set to expire on April 2nd, 2047. So you might wonder, okay, so where is, what's up with uh, Charity uh, now? Well, on June 23rd of 2021, Charity did post an update on her Facebook page. And here is what it said. Quote, Phoenix, who is eight now, is still amazing and super smart. Had his IQ tested 132. Funny, moody, stubborn, and very attached to his mama. This spring, he was formally diagnosed with ADHD. About two months ago, I leased my city house and moved out to the country to be closer to my mother, who was still dealing with stage four cancer. At some point, the cancer spread to her brain, but being the badass that she is, she is still living the fullest life she can. I just make sure she doesn't fall over doing it or overexert herself or get eaten by the alligators in our lake that she feeds every morning. And finally, Charity gives us the best news ever. I completely walked away from my eldest child and have not looked back. It's one thing to be a child who makes horrible decisions. It's another thing altogether to be a 27-year-old man and keep making decisions that put your family at risk. The final straw was learning that he was quote-unquote involved with a woman who lived two hours away from us and was out on bond for planning a mass shooting. Boundaries had been crossed too many times. I bought a gun, I learned to shoot, I am really good now, and said goodbye. I finally accepted it is okay to love him as my son, but really dislike the man he has become. Charity has written a book, which I highly recommend. It's called How Now, Butterfly, and you can get it on Amazon. Butterflies were Ella's favorite, and if you've ever seen a picture of Charity, she has multiple beautiful butterfly tattoos down her arms. This uh, book actually is uh, our Charity's personal notes for during the time this all this was going down with uh, Paris. As I understand it, she will also be releasing a brand new book very soon. Now, as I mentioned before, also, I will have the links to the interviews I referred to in this episode, along with the link to the book and everything on my uh, within my bio on Instagram at Beach House 34 podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to like, follow, or comment on any of the Beach House social locations like Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram. Until next time, bye.